Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Kat Arney. First up, let's take a look at some of this week's biggest breakthroughs from around the world. Kat, what have you got for us? Now, I'm sure that all our listeners out there are very good at maths, though actually I'm pretty rubbish at maths for a scientist. Uh, But around one in five of the population has actually moderate to severe problems dealing with numbers. And maths ability can also be lost as a result of diseases affecting the brain, such as stroke. Now, this obviously causes a lot of problems in daily life, work and employment and so on. And now some fascinating new research from scientists in Oxford and London could bring a boost to people's mathematical ability with the help of an electrical zapping to the brain. And their results are published in the journal Current Biology this week, no pun intended. So you're telling me that zapping someone's brain actually makes their math skills improve? Yes, absolutely. And this whole idea started from previous studies that showed that maths ability seems to be tied up in a particular area of the brain called the right parietal lobe. Now, that's a region on kind of the top of your head, around the crown of your head on the right-hand side. And damage in this area is linked to problems with maths and numbers. So the researchers led by Roy Cohen-Kadosh at Oxford University figured that stimulating the brain with electrical impulses using a non-invasive technique called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS, might actually help to boost maths power. So what did they do to find out whether this was the case? Well, the scientists recruited 15 healthy volunteers who were kind of average at maths and asked them to learn a series of symbols that represented an artificial number system. And at the same time, the researchers used this TDCS brain zapping technique to stimulate the volunteers' brains. And they divided them into three groups. So two got stimulation, uh, two groups got stimulation either on the left or their right parietal lobe. And one group kind of got a sham zapping that only lasted a few seconds and didn't have any effect. And then when the researchers tested the volunteers afterwards, they found that the people who'd had stimulation to their right parietal lobe, this is the maths bit, were more likely to be better at learning the new number system than the people in the other groups. And this improvement was still measurable six months after that original training. It's fascinating. But where does this actually lead us, though? Does this mean that uh, we take your average underperforming kid at school and start zapping their brain to enhance their maths GCSE results? Uh, Not just yet. And we certainly wouldn't recommend that anyone goes around giving themselves an electrical shock in the hope of a Improving their math skills. And it's unlikely that this is going to turn a complete math dunce into Einstein, but it could actually be very useful for people who do have severe difficulties with maths that hamper their normal life, you know, things just like not being able to count out money. And although we don't know for sure whether this is actually going to work, that's what the researchers are now planning to test in their future experiments. I was talking to a colleague uh, in Australia. He actually works for Radio National uh, in Australia, the ABC. And I was talking to him about this and he said, will it work for love and I said look James because name's James Carlton is one of the news editors I said you should be careful because if you connect the electrodes up the right way round or the wrong way round accordingly then your love portfolio could either expand or contract accordingly couldn't it <laughs> certainly could what have you got for us Well, this week, very interesting. Um, Scientists have been looking at the question of stroke, and stroke is very common. It's when a part of the brain gets deprived of its blood flow, either because a blood vessel bursts and you get bleeding into the brain, or because, more commonly, there's an obstruction inside a blood vessel which stops the flow of blood, and because brain brain tissue has such a high metabolic rate... If you arrest the blood flow, brain tissue starts to die. Now, that means that there is a region of the brain which is destroyed, but around that region of the brain is an area called the peri-infarct zone, and that tissue 
doesn't die, but it does do something very interesting, which Tom Carmichael, who's a researcher at UCLA in America, has written up in the journal Nature this week, and this could hold the key to much better treatments and therapies for people who have strokes. What they found by studying mice that they induced small strokes in the brains of is that that peri-infarct, or penumbra region in the brain, which isn't killed by the stroke but is affected, cells in that region become much more sensitive to a chemical transmitter substance called GABA, which is one of the brain's inhibitory nerve transmitters. So these cells turn down their electrical activity almost immediately that the stroke happens. But the interesting thing is that it stays turned down for a very long time. Now, acutely, having this GABA signal there is a very good thing because it makes the tissue much less active and therefore its metabolic demands are much lower, which means it helps to protect the tissue when that part of the brain has already been damaged. But those bits of brain could also help to help someone recover through things like physiotherapy by taking over some of the functions of the lost bit of brain tissue adjacent if they can be made to work properly again. So what this group did was to take these mice and then experiment with an experimental chemical called L655708, which is a drug that can block this GABA neurotransmitter discreetly in those bits of the brain. And what they find in these mice is that when this drug is given, from three days after a stroke, the animals show a dramatic improvement in their performance, almost down to being as good at performing a simple motor task as non-stroked-out controls. And, okay, this is a mouse, and it's a jump to go into a human, but this suggests this could be a very big and important breakthrough, because at the moment we don't have anything to throw at people who've had a stroke, apart from intensive physiotherapy, and it is a very common problem, and it does make lots of people disabled very commonly. Kat? Yeah, well, that's, that's something that certainly my family are affected by strokes. I'll be really interested to see where that goes. Now, also in the news this week, scientists have made a breakthrough that could provide a new way to combat cancer. And Cambridge University researcher Professor Doug Fearon has discovered that when cancers develop, they attract stem cells from elsewhere in the body. Now, these stem cells, which carry a marker called FAP, seem to produce immune-suppressing chemicals that prevent the immune system from attacking the tumour. But remove these cells, and the cancer then becomes vulnerable to immune attack. The problem that we wanted to solve was how did the tumor microenvironment prevent killing of tumor cells, cancer cells, by immune cells. We approached the problem by asking if there were cells in the tumor microenvironment that you actually would find in other places where we thought immune suppression would be physiologically reasonable, like healing wounds or even the uterus and placenta. And there was a cell type that you could find in healing wounds and in placenta that had first been described in 1990 by Lloyd Old, present in essentially all human adenocarcinomas. This cell could be recognized by its expression of a membrane protein, which we'll call FAP or FAP, which is an acronym for fibroblast activation protein. So using this as a membrane protein to identify a specific cell we devise a genetically modified mouse strategy in which we could kill FAP-expressing cells conditionally after tumors had formed in the mice to see what would the effect be on immune killing of the tumor. So your theory is that something is stopping the immune system attacking a cancer and that these cells that appear to be recruited from around an animal's body these ones that are FAP positive, they make this fibroblast activation protein, they're the cells you believe that are suppressing the immune system, so if you get rid of them, the immune system should be able to attack the tumour. 
Yes, that was a hypothesis we wanted to test, was if we were to kill that cell and only that cell in a tumor, could the immune system then control tumor growth? The outcome of the experiment was that when we did deplete the tumor microenvironment of these cells, the immune system did indeed kill the tumor or reduce the number of uh, viable cells in a tumor within 48 hours. How did you get rid of the FAP-positive cells in the cancers in the mice? That's been a very nice development over the last few years of where you can target the expression of human diphtheria toxin receptor to particular cell types genetically in modified mice because mice don't have a diphtheria toxin receptor. And if you give diphtheria toxin, the receptor internalizes that toxin. The toxin turns off protein synthesis in the cell, and the cell dies within 24 hours. So the experiment is based on the fact we made mice in which the diphtheria toxin receptor would be expressed only in FAP-positive stromal cells and nowhere else. So you put tumors into a mouse. They get these FAP-positive cells in there. You delete those cells using this diphtheria toxin technique, and the tumors then regress. They did in 48 hours. Either didn't grow or actually got slightly smaller. And in addition, the number of viable cells that we found in the tumor was decreased by about a half to two-thirds. So there was overall maybe about 80% fewer viable cells in that tumor than in the control tumor just 48 hours after the addition of diphtheria toxin. Is this exclusive to the experiments you've done, or would you find the same population of cells in any kind of cancer, and therefore the technique would generalize to other tumor types? Well, as I said, the, this cell was discovered by Lloyd Old in 1990, published in a PNAS paper, showed that it was present in essentially all human adenocarcinomas. So if the FAP-expressing cells in humans have the same function as they appear to in mice, then potentially if we could get at that cell in humans, most human adenocarcinomas might become more susceptible to immune control. And do you know why those cells stop the immune system attacking the tumor? The only insight we have now, which is pretty limited, is that we know we can block the tumor killing by giving neutralizing antibodies to tumor necrosis factor and interferon gamma to cytokines made by immune cells, uh, interferon gamma, particularly by T cells. So we presume somehow that FAP-expressing cells are inhibiting the tissue response to these two cytokines. So the next step will presumably be to ask, can you ubiquitously get rid of FAP in the long term and see what happens to these animals? Will they stay healthy? Mm. These cells are found in uh, bone marrow, bone, adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, retina, olfactory epithelium in the nose, tongue. So a variety of different normal tissue sites, uh, which has not been appreciated before, and it's looking like they have some important functions in these tissues, but we're still working on that. So I don't think it'll be a therapeutic option to simply kill these cells all over the body. I think somehow we have to interfere with their function selectively in a tumor. So we need to be a little more sophisticated. We need to know, understand what these cells do. Do they make a protein that we could inhibit in some way? Can we inhibit how they accumulate in the tumor? Those are the approaches we have to develop. We can't have sort of a blunderbuss approach of killing them off in the entire individual. So is that the next step then, to try and work out how you can target just those cells in just the tumor environment and not have ubiquitous killing throughout the body because there probably will be consequences. So what we are doing is we've looked at the genes that are being expressed in 
fat-expressing cells in adipose tissue, skeletal muscle, bone, and tumor. And then we go to the tumor and say, what are the genes uniquely expressed in the tumor fat cells? Might they be related to immune suppression? Might they be targets that we could uh, have some therapy directed at? And we're right in the middle of that. That was Cambridge University's Douglas Fearon talking with Chris. And that's a really fantastic discovery. And it was published this week in the journal Science. Chris. Thanks, Kat. Well, also this week, scientists have made an interesting breakthrough in understanding how bacteria fend off attack from microorganisms. Seems strange to think that bacteria infect us, but they also suffer from coughs and colds like we do in the form of viral attack from things like viruses called bacteriophages. And there's a paper in the journal Nature this week by Josiane Garneau, who's at Laval University in Quebec. And what she and her colleagues have done is to discover that bacteria actually have a little genetic library where they keep a record of all of the things that have attacked them in the past, and they use that library to recognise threats when they come in again and deal with them. This genomic library is a specialised structure called CRISPR, which stands for Clustered Regularly Interspersed Short Palindromic Repeat Region, which is why they call it CRISPR for short. And what happens is that if a bacterium is infected with one of these viruses, bacteriophage-type viruses, the bacterium usually gets killed. But about one time in a million, she found, and she was using a type of streptococci, the bacterium takes a little piece of the genetic material of the bacteriophage and it puts it into its own genome, into this CRISPR region. Then in future, if the bacterium gets challenged by that bacteriophage again or by other malignant pieces of DNA called plasmids, which can occasionally come in and hijack or add genes to bacteria, sometimes they're good but not not always, and so some bacteria sometimes want to fend them off, what happens is that the bacterial cell uses this CRISPR region, this library of genetic information of past threats. It compares the genetic sequence of the incoming bacteriophage DNA with the DNA sequence it's got stored. If the two match up, it uses a module or an enzyme called CAS, C-A-S, which is like a molecular pair of scissors to chop up the bacteriophage DNA and stop it actually hijacking or taking over the bacterial cell using a technique called RNA interference. Now, you might say, well, that's fantastic, but why does this help us? Well, actually, bacteria are very useful as tools for biotechnology. They're used to make drugs and other chemicals that are useful for humans, and they also make food. They use, they're used in the cheese industry. And if the bacteria that are your cheese culture or your cheese-making culture or your drug-making culture fall, fall victim to some of these bacteriophages, then it can destroy your whole culture. So if you can render the bacteria immune to attack from some of these common phages, you can protect your bacterial culture. And that's what they're suggesting that we could use this research for. Over and above that, I just think it's wonderful to think that you can get bacteria, which are nonetheless resistant to bacteria uh, attacking viruses. It's like giving a bacterium a dose of a flu vaccine. Well, that's it for our news this week. You can catch up on all of the news stories we covered on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news. All the references for those stories we covered are there too. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.